Listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. We have a retrofit project that we started about 18 months ago where we really drilled down into the whole methodology for looking at existing materials and making sure that as many of them are reused as possible. So we have done detailed material audits of all the materials and we've then developed material passports based on retrofit. We've taken this right the way through. Today we are speaking to two members of the steering group of Architects Declare, Julia Barfield, founding director of Marks Barfield Architects, and Zoe Watson of Allies and Morrison. First up is Julia, who leads a small practice, currently about 12 people, perhaps best known for its phenomenal work designing the London Eye and actually making an idea which began as part of London's Millennium Celebration, a permanent part of the capital skyline. More recent work includes two projects in Cambridge, the all-timber Cambridge Mosque, Sterling Prize shortlisted in 2021 and winner of almost 20 awards, and the University of Cambridge Primary School in Northwest Cambridge. Julia is also one of the driving forces behind Architects Declare, and today we are talking both about her own sustainability journey within her practice and what's next for Architects Declare. Our second guest, Zoe Watson, will drill down into some of the detail of AD's forthcoming three-part plan for transforming Britain's built environment. Julia, architects often describe themselves as being on a sustainability journey. How has your understanding of sustainability and how that's expressed in your work changed over time? You know, in October 2018, like a lot of people, I became aware of the IPCC report, you know, that uh, warned that we had 12 years to avoid a climate catastrophe. And for me, that just changed everything. And as I kind of looked more into the science of it, and I understood the severity and the urgency of the climate crisis, it became the lens through which I see, well, everything, really. I found myself on Lambeth Bridge. in November of that year when XR was kind of testing their bridge closure things, uh, although I avoided getting arrested. And then soon after that, my first grandchild was born. So it was quite a moment of change, I suppose. And I then wanted to move that into my own practice, which gradually over the last two or three years, we, we have achieved, I think. We've worked on our own strategy for change. We are developing our own kind of materials library, mainly biomaterials and the like. And what we've focused on in the last 18 months to two years is circularity. We have a retrofit project that we started about 18 months ago where we really drilled down into the whole kind of circular 
piece and, and we've developed a, a whole kind of methodology for looking at existing materials and making sure that as many of them are reused as possible. So we did have done detailed material audits of all the materials in this one particular building. We've then developed material passports based on the work done by ORMS because we're part of the Material Passports Working Group. They've done one on based on new materials and then we've done one based on retrofit and, you know, we've taken this right the way through. We were fortunate enough to have some very good contractors, uh, particularly the strip-out contractors, who may be called deconstruction contractors now, because they're actually really up to the minute. They really want to change things in terms of the deconstruction. And we've had quite a lot of success stories. So all the raised floors have been reused. Sadly, not the pedestals, because they people tend to put a glob of glue at the top of them, you know, where the changing mechanism is. And all the internal fire doors we've reused, and quite a lot of the materials around in the um, Cat A, because we were doing Cat A, not Cat B. You know, we managed to get over quite a lot of hurdles in terms of the certification for the fire doors. And we've kind of measured the carbon saving as well as the monetary saving from that so it's a process of persuading our clients that this is the right way to do to go as well that's really fascinating i mean for a thoughtful design-led practice it is a step change in in the way of working and it must take longer i mean you need to figure out how to do all these things yes it did take a long time all the material audits and the material inventories they did take a long time but we think the next time we do it we get that's going to be much quicker and and that's you know what we've obviously told our clients and and the thing is that even though there's much more work up front for instance with the fire doors normally we would have had to draw redraw all the fire doors you know at stage four or whatever but obviously we didn't have to because we've reused them so there are some savings at later stages because otherwise you know clients are going to think oh it's just extra 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 but actually there are savings in time later on down the line But what we've been doing in parallel to that is that we've got a charity project that we're working on here in Stockwell, where we're trying to build a building entirely out of reused materials. And that ties in quite well because we've actually got quite a lot of materials from this retrofit project in Baker Street saved by the client and they're they're storing them for us, which is fantastic that will be reused on the, on, on the charity project in Stockwell. We've got materials promised by big CLT panels, promised by New Living, a, a housing company that had some offcuts. So we actually based the design on these offcuts, but we couldn't, we couldn't take them when they promised them to us sort of a year ago because they're too big and we had nowhere to store them. And then subsequently they went bust. <laughs> but long story short, we've managed to recover that material um, and about 200 tonnes of CLT we've recovered from the factory in Stevenage and now it's sitting in a car park in Newham because we we kind of went out to the network and there's uh, actually someone from ACAN who works at Newham and she's she's kind of helped us do all that so you know we kind of went (laughs) it's been it's been quite a journey but one of the things that you know the barriers that we've identified and that was the reason for doing this you know as a kind of test case really is the fact that we do need a material physical material store um well more than one i think in london you know we need a whole series of material stores in london one of the things that we've done is we've had a workshop with nbs so we just contacted nbs because what we were finding when we were writing specifications for the reuse of materials 
was that we were having to write them ourselves, that they weren't in MBS, really. And that's been true, I think, of biomaterials as well. So we had a workshop saying, you know, come on, NBS, you need to <laughs> adapt and, you know, make NBS useful for the climate emergency. And also it's good as an education so that when architects go into NBS, they get triggers that say, hang on a minute, is this material, do you really need it new or could you reuse it? And have you thought about using biomaterial instead of this material? It's a really interesting area, isn't it? They're thinking about, for example, office fit-ups. They're, they're, they're done so quickly, things are, are kind of ripped out. And so if you've got the materials passports, you know what's where, what size it is. And so, yeah, how do materials passports fit into this this sort of agenda of reuse? Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're essential. I mean, I think they're essential going forward as well, so that we do know where a material's come from, what its carbon content is, because it may be that some materials, their carbon content is very minimal, and therefore, you know, so you've got to decide where best to really focus your efforts, I think. Material passports are definitely really, really helpful, because this, this was a retrofit project, but it was a retrofit project on a building that had only been built in 2002, and it had just had a fit out too. So that's why it was just so important not to waste all of that relatively new material that was, was in there. And getting the O&M manuals on that was tricky. I mean, for example, finding out what the fire-resistant paint was on the steelwork. If we hadn't managed at the bottom of a filing cabinet to find the certificate for that fire-resistant paint, we probably would have had to strip it off, redo it, or, or even not reuse the steelwork. So all of that is so important. We could get depressed about it, or we could do something about it and just say, right, you're going to, I don't know, halve this or even more. These are precious materials. We, 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 mustn't, we must treat all materials as the precious resource that they are. Well, this is fantastic that you've embarked on this in a very proactive way. A standout project of your practice is the Cambridge Mosque, described as the UK's first green mosque. Uh, could you tell us about this project? <laughs> yes, I mean, it was, a, yeah, it was a wonderful project to work on. We won it in competition in 2009. It took a long time to kind of get to come to fruition. But we had a fantastic client who was very ambitious in terms of the sustainability. And, and that really comes from the best of Islamic thinking about the need to take care of the environment and, and, and all of this, as well as from ourselves, of course. So there was a real meeting of minds in terms of making it as sustainable as possible. And I suppose one of the key things was natural light. There was a lot of testing on having as much natural light coming in, and mainly, um, in fact, entirely from, from the roof, which is obviously the most efficient way to get natural light into buildings. Lots of studies done to make sure that we had enough natural light, but we didn't let too much heat in. So, you know, there's lots of natural lights in the ablution areas, as well as in the prayer hall, as well as in the atrium. So natural light was a, a key thing. But then, in addition to that, all of the rainwater is harvested. It's kept for the toilets, for the, using on the toilets, and also for the garden outside. No fossil fuels on site, so we have heat pumps. But actually, the, the prayer hall is almost entirely naturally vented. So we've got vents at low level, and then the air comes up out at high level around the roof lights. And then, because it is an extraordinary kind of test in terms of m and &E, you know, you'll go, there'll be nobody in the prayer hall one minute and then a thousand people maybe in in the prayer hall in the next half an hour or something. We do actually have fans 
um, around the roof lights to draw air out if need be. Cambridge was the first place in 2021, wasn't it? Went, that almost went up to 40 degrees. I think it was 38 or 39. The, the mosque coped with that very well. It was very comfortable inside. So that was a good test because obviously we'd, uh, you know, the fabric is very well insulated and airtight and all of, all of that. We've got some PVs on the roof. The client didn't want to put them on the prayer hall for religious reasons, but we've also got on the imam's flat, the two imam's flats, we've got biodiverse roofs. And of course, the structures are all in timber. We worked very closely with Bloomer Lehman from a very early stage, which we like to do. I think that if you're going to do something unusual, you need to work with the people who are going to make it. <laughs> and that's what we try and do. We bought them on board even before we went for planning, so that we knew that we could actually... These were kind of affordable. These kind of double-curved structures were affordable. And then, of course, we had to persuade the main contractor to use them afterwards, but that worked out okay. Because the client was very, you know, obviously very intelligent client from the university, and, and he himself was a kind of bridge because he was English. He'd been to Westminster he, and then converted to Islam when he was at university. So he was a kind of cultural bridge between Islam and kind of the West and I think in the way the mosque itself is, is a bit like a cultural bridge because we, we tried to make it be comfortable in the Cambridge setting. We're using kind of the Cambridge vernacular in terms of gold brick and, and the red brick highlights. You know, obviously there is a relationship between the King's College Chapel with the fan vaulting, <laughs> as well as looking at Islamic mosques. We looked at Islamic mosques throughout the world and interestingly found that mosques actually were very different in very different parts of the world. So they took on, they were kind of responded to the local vernacular, the local cultural conditions, the local technology of building. And, and so that gave us kind of free reign to make it very much a British mosque, a British mosque of the 21st century. So no, it was a wonderful project to work on. So it's been open for a few years now. Are you doing any post-occupancy evaluation? Are, are there any lessons learned? Yes, well, we've actually been involved with a study. I mean, we did our own whole life carbon assessments uh, of it. And there's actually a study being done. Sadie Morgan's practice is, is, is running it. They're, they've taken a five timber buildings and they're doing this yes. study with university. Pat Scott is working on that. Yeah, that's right. And, and at a quite a different scale, you've also worked on quite a few well, railway projects, including the last big investment project, Crossrail. What do you think about the decision to cancel important bits of HS2? What does this say about the UK's ability to achieve a net zero economy? Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's kind of newspeak, isn't it, to say that that they, that they're thinking about the long term. I think it's a really bad decision. I think, you know, HS2, everyone talks about, oh, it's just about getting to Manchester or Birmingham 15 minutes earlier. It's not. It's about capacity building, as well as connecting the country north-south. I saw an economist talk about it who had been asked to do a study, and he was saying HS2, 3, 4, going all the way up to, to Scotland, that they would pay for themselves in just a few years. Of course we should be doing it. The new Building Safety Act regulations have just come into force. 
The actual regulations say that you have to be competent to deal with the different design risks on a project. Risks set out in the building regulations under Part A, structure, Part B, fire, Part C, etc. But a lot of the interpretation of the regulation, rather than stressing the types of risk, stresses the types of building and suggests that if you dealt with parts A to Q on a school building, this doesn't necessarily show the necessary experience to deal with them on, say, a library. To me, this shows a, a misunderstanding of the design process that's quite common among the public sector. But if this interpretation becomes widespread, it could kill off normal progression and growth within, of practices within the profession. And regarding sustainability, if you've not worked on, a, say, a timber-framed building before, the idea that you need to have prior experience of something to show that you're competent to manage the risks on it, it could uh, yeah, be a real barrier to moving towards a sustainable construction. Do you, do you have a view on, on, on this? I completely agree with all of what you've just said, all of the above. <laughs> I mean, particularly for young practices, how are young practices going to break into different sectors? I mean, we as a practice, we work across many sectors and we find that that's actually a benefit to, to most of the t- sectors. You can take fresh ideas and fresh thinking in from one to another. So I think it's, as you say, a complete misunderstanding of how architecture works. I just wanted to ask more about what's in your pipeline where you're really pushing sustainability. Well, I've seen another sort of kind of slightly off the wall project is we're working on helping to bring together a tidal range lagoon in West Somerset. So about 10 years ago, I worked on the Seven Barrage, trying to get the Seven Barrage built. And about two years ago, one of the professors there who used to be a professor at Cardiff University came back and said, would I like to get involved in this tidal range lagoon project? And yeah, I mean, this is kind of extramural. This is not paid project. The UK, along its west coast, has, I mean, well, Bristol itself has the second highest tidal range in the world. <laughs> and all along the, the west coast, up to the Mersey and everything, is, you know, potentially 12% of the UK's energy could be generated from tidal power. And that's tidal range as opposed to tidal stream. So can you explain that briefly? Yeah, well, it's an untapped resource. The whole movement towards wind power and solar power has been really, really good. And now it's cheaper than fossil fuels, although the fossil fuel companies don't seem to have noticed. But sometimes the wind doesn't blow. Sometimes the sun doesn't shine. Whereas tidal power is completely predictable. The tides always come in and out. and Constant. Um, it's a constant. The fact that all of that potential along the West Coast, and particularly in the Bristol Channel, hasn't been harnessed seems to me to be bonkers. So what are the barriers to this? Or is the barrier to this the cost? The cost is high. It's, it's kind of comparable to a nuclear power station, but a nuclear power station only lasts 30 to 40 years. This could last 120 years. It, it, it Coming back to long-term thinking again, it just needs the long-term thinking. So it's been four years now since architects first declared. Incredible how quickly that's gone by. And at that moment, there was an incredible intensity of focus on the climate crisis, as you say, following on the IPCC report, and Greta Thunberg was very much in evidence. AD is part of a family of organizations, including Leti and ACAN 
as well as longer established organizations. How has Architects Declare evolved compared to what you were hoping when it was first set up? What I think is that Aiken and Letty and AD have been really kind of working together on so many different fronts. There's been a lot of kind of cross fertilization and of kind of people and ideas. For instance, I initiated some climate emergency training for design review panels, talking to uh, Deborah Denner from Frame Projects. And we put together a whole climate emergency training for design review panels that actually went out over 2021. We, we presented to virtually all of Frame Projects design review panels, which are quite a few of the design review panels in London. And Clara Bagnall, George was involved in that very much, and Letty, lots of people from Letty. So there really has been a lot of behind the scenes collaboration Our second speaker is joining us now. Zoe Watson took on the role of Head of Sustainability at Allies and Morrison in January of this year. Zoe has a long pedigree in sustainable design, having worked previously at Levitt Bernstein, Hopkins, and Bear Architects. And she joined the steering committee of Architects Claire in 2021. So AD will shortly be releasing a plan I think you're calling it three building blocks to transform Britain's built environment. Um, how did that come about? How was that kick started? And what was the process of putting this together? Julia? I'll answer. Yeah. So um, you know, we've been working on a strategy for change at AD. And I think we've kind of identified two main focuses, one of which is supporting and engaging with signature practices. And the other one, though, is trying to make change in, in a systems way, trying to make systems change. And I managed to set up a meeting with Ed Meliband in October last year. And Ed was just really open to us kind of coming back. And he actually asked us to come back with a, with a plan, with a policy document that he could use that would make suggestions as to how the construction industry could be transformed. So that was almost a year ago. And where are you now, Zoe? So as Julia said, it's something that's kind of evolved organically, we should say. So it's something that started as a conversation with a specific sort of party, but has grown into its own sort of document, which we hope will be a cross-party policy document, um, which outlines practical and impactful policies to support a transition to a regenerative built environment and what we mean by regenerative is um, a built environment that enables society and nature to thrive together so we believe that the policies we've we've um, suggested will create jobs will improve public health and will also restore the natural environment um, so that that's some, something that we believe quite passionately about so there are three themes and missions one is to prioritize resource efficiency the second one is to kickstart the circular economy. And the third one is to restore our social and natural infrastructure. And then there's also a foundational layer because we recognise there needs to be systemic change. There needs to be a fundamental shift in the way we govern, um, essentially, to support the policies and bring about, about a true regenerative um, built environment and future. So... Policymakers usually have backgrounds in making policy rather than in the subject they're making policy about. And often it seems quite hard for them to tell the difference between real expertise and spin from vested interests or just people talking nonsense. 
So is this this document it seems like an attempt to distill expertise and pass it on to policymakers. Is that a fair assessment? Is is that what you're 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 advocating for? Yeah, hundred percent. I think you've you've nailed it there. I think we've kind of recognised that as built environment, we've been doing a lot of work. We've been collaborating a lot, uh, which has been fantastic. But we've not been sharing that knowledge to the kind of governance uh, side of things. And I think this is the next layer of kind of cross uh, fertilisation that needs to happen uh, to bring it, to kind of create these levers that actually generate true change. The problem with a regenerative future is that it's so interconnected, it's so interwoven that it's very difficult and it's been very challenging to boil these down to a kind of a very tangible and practical sort of um, set of policies and actions because, you know, one thing links to another and you could accidentally pull one and, and cause another chain reaction. So I think it's being mindful of this kind of whole picture, I think is really important. So when is this going to be released or what are the next steps? So we've got a series of um, engagements. So we, we want to engage the built environment and our signatories, not just architects, I should say, all built environment professionals, I think, are important um, in the kind of scale that we of impact that we want to achieve. Because we're very conscious, we've developed it as a very technical focused group, but we want buy-in from, from the rest of the industry. And uh, we also want to know where the priorities actually lie and where, where the tripwires are as well. And one thing I should also say is um, there's kind of two tiers to the engagement strategy. One is the built environment, but um, we do hope to launch this in Parliament, aiming at the early next year, essentially. Um, we hope to have a more finalised document that we've kind of got feedback from everyone by then and, and finalised it, and then we can confidently launch it to, um, to kind of policy and MPs. Some of the measures that are referred to, such as reporting whole life carbon and materials passports, can be quite sort of technically detailed, kind of quite admin heavy. But if we if we consider the quality of some recent regulations, like how terrible EPCs are, or uh, the re- recent regulation banning fire safe natural materials in external walls, or the new Part O that doesn't ex- understand that it's too hot outside nowadays as well. I mean, I guess it's a risk that the government wouldn't make the the, the kind of regulations that are being called for sort of sufficiently well. And h- how would you how would you sort of address the the kind of the uptake of these uh, of these regulations to make sure that, that it doesn't backfire and it still kind of does what it's intending. That's a really, really good point. And I think this is where it should be led by built environment professionals and that there should be a consultation process with built environment professionals because we are kind of familiar with how the process of design works, whereas policy professionals aren't, as you, as you already said. And so I think, you know, there's no civil bullet, unfortunately. We've tried to distill it as, as much as we can to make it sort of accessible. But I think each one comes with their own sort of, you know, if you just do one, you, you may run the risk of um, having consequences. So I think it's kind of thinking of the whole picture is really important. And I think we don't want to lose that kind of big picture thinking um, within our roadmap, if that makes sense. Is this the main focus of AAD now, this project that you're, that you're working on? Um, it's a core focus, I think, for this year because we can we can sense there's a bit of uh, you know change going on. Perhaps there's kind of a rumbling of 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 things shifting. So I think architects declare like to be quite reactive to what's going on and where the change, any kind of uh, where our energy can be put to the greatest impact. 
Um, so I would say it's it's a core focus, but not the only focus. We do we do have other other work streams that we're working on as well. Do you want to share anything about that? Well, there's there's the meeting the steering group. Oh yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so I I I did that last week. So that's where signatories can basically meet, and there's typically two or three steering group members. And as I said, I did my first one about a week ago, and there were about three practices um, that were there with a number of members, and. It was a bit of a wake-up call because basically they were kind of saying, you know, what do we do? <laughs> to, <laughs> which three years on, you kind of think, uh, but everyone's on their own journey, etc. But I think we were able to be helpful because even though the Practice in Action masterclasses that took place in 2022 are there on the website, it's always better, isn't it, to talk to somebody in person. So these Meet the Steering Group is a practice comes with their own kind of issues that they're encountering and you, you will give feedback and... Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and answer questions and, and give them guidance on how to take things forward. And I just wanted to also say on the kind of meet and greet, we're very much on the mindset that we want to help people as much as possible and be proactive yeah. on their journey. So it's not about beating up, you know, people with a stick because we recognise we're, we're all battling with systemic issues which are kind of greater than just one practice. So the meet and greet is very much an opportunity to allow a kind of honest conversation of where people are at to meet them at the, the place they are and sort of help them along that journey. One last question. You know, I remember like the huge excitement when AD launched four years ago. Where do you feel you are now, four years in? What are your observations, Julia, about where you've gotten to and where you want to get to? Well, we're sort of in the trenches as well as sort of up in the sky in a way, trying to influence policy. We mustn't be afraid of talking about systems change because it is the system that isn't really not doing our planet any good. And we do need to take a different direction. But I think as professionals, we are creative problem solvers and the solutions are out there. So we mustn't be downhearted. We need to um, focus on the solutions and, and, and turning this whole system around so that it's creating a thriving system. Well, I thought it was really fascinating the beginning of our discussion where you were talking about how you're actually putting this into practice and, you know, what that entails, the nitty gritty of what that entails. At the same time, you're tackling this at the top with your kind of policy document. So I think that's what we all need to be doing, actually. Yeah, we need to do everything, everywhere, all at once. <laughs> well, thank you very much for yeah. coming on the podcast today. R really interesting discussion. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Our next guest will be Jay Ahn, founding director of Studio Weave. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, Please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. <laughs>